The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. My name is Dewey Doval, and it is my pleasure to be back with Jimmy Johnson and Ryan Pendergraft to continue our series on the doctrines of grace. Over the past several months, we've released episodes on the doctrines of unconditional election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace. And during our time together today, we're going to pick up where we left off and discuss the doctrine of total depravity with Jimmy and Ryan. So gentlemen, welcome back to the Covenant Podcast. It is great to see you guys this afternoon. Good to be back. good to be here. Amen. Well, to get us started, as we've done uh, in the past episodes of this series, would you be willing to provide us with a working definition of total depravity? Maybe tell our audience some of the other terms that are commonly associated uh, with this doctrine as well. Who wants to go? Me? <clears throat> go for it, well, Ryan. I, I think that total depravity is is one of those doctrines that if you affirm this you know if you affirm the t you, you most i think consequently have to affirm the u the l the i and the p uh, because if we affirm that man in his sinful state is totally depraved uh, then it is dependent upon god to elect it is dependent upon christ to die for the elect it is dependent upon uh, God's drawing of the Spirit through irresistible grace, and it is dependent upon God to preserve the sinner in salvation until Christ returns, whenever he is finally glorified and perfected. And so, to me, and you guys might disagree, but this is kind of the where it either rises or falls on total depravity. If we can affirm this, then the other points make sense. So total depravity, or as sometimes is referred to as radical depravity, first of all, to do away with any kind of misconceptions, total depravity does not mean that man is as bad as he can be. Uh, we believe in something which is referred to as restraining grace. I, I think that uh, perhaps you even see this in Romans 1, where God in his forbearance and patience allows people uh, to turn away from him, to rebel against him. And then once we see later on in Romans 1, it says, Paul says that God gave them over to a depraved mind, that he finally allowed them in his wisdom and sovereignty, he allows them to be what they are. And that is utterly sinful without that restraint, without that uh, that grace, which keeps us from being as bad as what we 
possibly can be. I think that's why, for instance, there's so many differences in people. Why you have all of us who are morally evil and bad, some that we in our eyes would deem to be worse than others uh, because of God's operation of, of grace in a person's life that keeps them from uh, being as, as bad as what they can be. So total depravity doesn't say that you are incapable of doing good. Total depravity, or is, is sometimes called radical depravity, means that you are depraved to your root. Everything that you do is and has been affected by sin. So your thoughts are affected by sins. Your action is affected by sin. Even the good that we do in some way is affected by sin. Uh, and so total depravity, it just means that man is incapable of living in such a way as to where his entire life is to the glory of God. He's incapable of doing that. He doesn't possess the ability uh, to do that. Just to chime in a little bit, another term I've used and and. Ryan kind of alluded to it without saying it is total inability. Um, that man is totally unable to do anything that is pleasing to God in a, a salvific sense. Um, and that is to say that, yes, man in his fallen condition can do some deeds that God's law um issues like um or that got or the in accord with god's law but as ryan said even in doing those things man's thoughts and attitudes are not in accord with the glory of god and and thus even in doing those good things there there are vestiges or or aspects of those deeds that are still affected by sin and therefore do not please God in any sort of salvific way. Um, so total inability, I think, is is another one, which is why we would, and we'll get into this later, it's why we would say that that man is unable in his fallen state without a prior working of, of grace to respond to the call of the gospel, which we would admit is a, is a good thing. Um, but man in his fallen state is unable to unless God does something first. Well, it's a very helpful definition to get us started with the doctrine of total depravity. And just in an effort to be consistent with what we've established as a pattern in our previous um, uh, episodes in our series, would you guys be willing to provide us now with the biblical basis for this doctrine? Uh, where would be some key biblical references that you would go to to demonstrate to somebody why the doctrine of total depravity should be believed as a Christian? Yes. I mean, right off the bat, um, we we have to go back to the garden, right? If, if you get the garden wrong, you're going to get everything else wrong. Um, we understand that in the garden, after Adam's creation, God condescended and entered into a covenant with Adam on the condition of perfect obedience, um, forbidding him to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on the pain of death. And long story short, we know that man disobeyed. 
and Adam was a public person representing all his physical seed. And therefore, when he sinned, all his seed who were in him fell at that time and thus inherited what might be called or distinguished as inherited guilt as well as corruption. But they are all a part of what is commonly called original sin. Um, so going back to Genesis 3, we, we see that, and we see that further worked out when we get into a little bit later in Genesis. Um, you have Cain and Abel, of course, you see the first murder without either of them being taught. And after that, it says that man it was devoting themselves to all sorts of wickedness, and, and therefore God brought the flood as a judgment upon man, saving only one man and his family. Um, through whom the promised seed um, would destroy the serpent. So going back to the fall, we can even begin to see that there's something fundamentally wrong. Uh, another reason why we might look at the inherited guilt portion or, or consider the inherited guilt portion from Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and his wife were not allowed into the garden after they were removed, and neither were any of his children, even though they had not committed an actual transgression. Um, but by virtue of, of inheriting this guilt, they also were not allowed to partake of the tree of life, which I think is just further support. Um, there are other passages. I mean, Ephesians 2 is one that I, I often go to. I mean, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Um, this death implies that there's something, something that we are unable to fix, just as we cannot make ourselves alive after we've physically died. And the same way, we, if we are spiritually dead, then we can therefore not make ourselves spiritually alive. And, and one other place I'll go to, and I'll hand it over to Ryan, um, just the very front of the book of Romans, I think, supports this doctrine of total depravity. Because in Romans 1, 16 and 17, you have the declaration that Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes and how it is actually in the gospel that the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith and for faith. And then Paul begins to unpack that beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1. And he does that by showing how man by nature, no man by nature is, is righteous of their own accord, but all have fallen. That includes the Gentiles. Um, even though they were not given the written law, they were a law unto themselves because the law had been written on their heart. And even the Jews who had the written law and all the ceremonies and all the prophets and everything else, they still rejected God's law. And, and sinned against him. And in case anyone thought that, that they were capable after the first two chapters, Romans chapter three starts out by telling us, no one is righteous, no, not one. And finally, at the end of, or in verse 20, I believe it is of Romans chapter three, it says, for by the works of the law, no one shall be saved or justified rather, no one shall be justified. And then Paul transitions and explains how it is in the gospel that God's righteousness is vindicated because God forgives sinners. Although he can by no means clear the guilty, somehow 
God has forgiven sinners in the past and continues to now and will in the future. And the question is, how can he do that? And the answer, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who both through his active obedience and passive obedience made propitiation for our sins. And, and what does all that have to do with total depravity? Well, it has everything to do with it. Because man is totally unrighteous, and by works of the law, man cannot justify himself, there is a, a need for a redeemer because man is totally unable to save himself. He's spiritually dead, he's condemned, and he, he will not do anything that pleases God apart from some miraculous work of God, both exterior or outside of him, but also a work on the inside of him. So, Ryan, anything you want to add? Uh, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I guess I have a few things <clears throat> that I would add, certainly not take away. Um, one of the things that, that I run into uh, when talking about sin is that we want to, we want to externalize sin. We want to make sin something that is outside of us, you know, outside of our nature and our very being. <clears throat> you know, one of the, the points that I brought up um, on Sunday preaching through Nehemiah, whenever Nehemiah prays uh, an imprecatory prayer against Sambalat and his enemies, uh, you know, he, he prays that, that God would not forgive their sin. Uh, and how is that, how does that come at odds with what people, the common mantra for today is, you know, love the sinner, but hate the sin. And we see in Psalm 5, where God explicitly says, I hate those who do evil. Um, and so I, I think that to understand <clears throat> total, <clears throat> excuse me, to understand total inability, to understand uh, original sin, we need to understand sin as something not uh, from a part of us, but something that composes us, our very nature. And so when we talk about Adam's sin, for instance, I am per se, just to kind of use the analogy, I am not guilty of taking the fruit and eating it. I didn't do that. Adam's children didn't do that. But I am guilty by consequence of Adam's sin, and therefore all his posterity are guilty as well. And I think that the psalmist David even had uh, had this down whenever he, he claims in the Psalms, he says, in, in sin did my mother conceive me. And it wasn't that his mother had did some immoral act, and and by this act David was conceived, but David is is explicitly saying that even while I was being formed in my mother's womb, I had within me a sin nature. And so the question that, that I think that we answer is, does one become a sinner after the first act of sin, or do they sin because by nature they are sinners? I think the biblical view would to state that we sin because by nature we are sinners. And to go up a few chapters, you've you went from Romans 1, 2, and 3. Romans 5, Paul talks about federal headship, that we in Adam are condemned. We who are in Christ are justified. 
So we have in scripture two federal heads, one of which all of us are born into, that is in Adam, and another we are born into by faith into Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Romans 5.18, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so all who are in Adam die, all who are in Adam or excuse me, all who are in Christ are made alive. And again, I think one of the most common arguments that I hear was, is I'm not guilty for what Adam did. That's not fair. You know, that's why didn't God give Cain and Abel a second chance, put them in the garden and say, here's the tree of life. Don't eat from it. Let's see if you can do better than what your parents did. Well, if we're coming from an argument of that's not fair, then we must realize that all of us would have to enter into a state in which Adam was pre-fall, which would mean that your salvation then would be entirely based upon your good works. I would much rather be an Adam, saved by faith in Christ, than being in a state of Adam prior to the fall and having to do it on my own. Because to say that's not fair, to say that inherited guilt isn't fair. Basically, what you're saying is you can do better than what Adam did. And I don't think none of us are capable of doing that. Very well said by both of you gentlemen. Um, A lot of good thoughts to consider from the biblical testimony of the doctrine of total depravity. And as I'm sure both of you know, as pastors and as those who've wrestled with the doctrines of grace in the past, um, Objections are likely to be presented, and and you guys have already engaged with a few of them just in some of the answers that you've provided up to this point. But there are many objections that are levied against this doctrine by those who are either vehemently opposed to it or those who are just wrestling with it in their own minds, having encountered the biblical basis for the first time. So I want to spend a few moments with you men going over just a few of the more common objections that you've ran into or come across with regard to the doctrine of total depravity. And maybe Jimmy uh, could start, you know, you mentioned man not having um, the ability to um, to do anything that's acceptable to God or pleasing to God, spiritually speaking, salvifically speaking. Maybe uh, start by getting into maybe the, the distinction between uh, man's natural ability to make choices versus man's moral ability to make choices. And then anything else, of course, that both of you guys wanted to touch on Uh, But I think that'd be a good place to start for our listeners. Yes. So natural ability or inability versus moral ability or inability. Um, When speaking of natural inability or ability (laughs) in this case, more so natural inability is, is the way this, this language is set up. Oftentimes it's portrayed that those who are in sin have sort some sort of physical defect that disables them from responding appropriately to the gospel, except for they just spiritualize it, Uh, that there's just some component that they formerly had while Adam was in the garden that we, we no longer possess. Um, and, and therefore unable to, to do what God requires. And, and, no one actually believe. Well, there might be a few people who actually believe this type of inability, but I have yet to encounter anyone who who looks at total depravity in that way, as if it's identical with with like physical blindness. 
or something like that. Um, because physical blindness is a an actual defect in someone's eyes that disables them from being able to see. Um, whereas the way that Jonathan Edwards and and who I've read more so, Andrew Fuller wrestled this issue is they they reject the the natural inability framework that makes it more like a physical defect and and instead take on what is called a a moral inability um, and say that man by virtue of his fall is morally unable to respond to the gospel or to do anything which is spiritually good in God's sight and the analogy that I've I've read or heard, and this is my paraphrase of it, is that say you have a man who who's walking towards the cliff. Um, if we're going to use that analogy to say that he's naturally unable, we would say something like the, the fact that he has literal scales that have been put over his eyes and he's unable to see the cliff. He's just walking toward it. He, he can't do anything to avoid it. Um, and he just walks off um, unbeknownst to him that there is a cliff in front of him because he can't see it. Um, whereas I think the more biblical view, um, moral inability suggests that that man, though he is physically able to see that cliff, he just closes his eyes and says, there's no cliff there. <laughs> and, and even though people are telling him there's a cliff there, he's saying, no, 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 there's no cliff there while well, he keeps his eyes shut and he walks off the cliff. Um, so that's one, um, objection that that some level towards total depravity and i think it it goes back to to what ryan alluded to in the definition it it implies that when we say that there's a total depravity that we we are suggesting that that man is not only unable to respond or do spiritually good things but man's just not able to do anything (laughs) like good in any way shape or form um, that he's totally and absolutely bad in every part of his being. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the classic Reformed um, formulation or, or particular Baptist formulation for that matter, because the particular Baptists and the Reformed agree on the subject. Another objection um, that I've I've heard is that essentially... And I may be misunderstanding this, but essentially what is leveled is that, yes, man is corrupt, um, that, yes, man can't do most things that are spiritually pleasing to God, but there's one exception, and that is is the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed, there is something inherent within the message that makes it able to be accepted by the person who hears it, while it can also be resisted. Now, this is not Arminian, because Arminians would even suggest that there needs to be some sort of provenient grace that that precedes the accepting of the gospel. I, I don't know what to call this exactly, other than I find it to be odd and inconsistent. And And the way I would simply respond to that is we have no notion that man is just with all things except for the gospel, that man is unable, and all of a sudden, with the gospel message itself, suddenly man is able um, to to respond to it. There are no scriptural indications that that's true. And also, I would make the argument that it robs the Holy Spirit 
of <laughs> his his operation um, and and unique mission um, in in bringing about salvation in those who God chose before the foundations of the world. It it seems to make the gospel in the mere utterance of it almost effectual to salvation without any spiritual working in and and through it or prior to it. Um, typically, we would say that the Spirit accompanies the proclamation of the gospel as it's being communicated to someone. It, it is the Spirit who, who makes the seed grow in the heart of the elect. Um, but that is an objection that I've, I've run into even in my own church. Um, and, and really, I just, I think that it doesn't understand, one, um, total depravity. Or, or original sin, like that's not a biblical view of original sin in any way, or historical view of original sin. And secondly, I, I also think that it doesn't have a full orbed, or even take into account the doctrine of God and and divine missions, and and soteriology as an offshoot of, of the divine mission. So I think there's just a whole host of problems with that view, and I think it's refuted by just showing that that no, um, there, there is a work of the Spirit that must be done alongside the verbal proclamation of the gospel because it, it just puts the proclaimer of the gospel under so much pressure. <laughs> if you don't just say it right, the person person won't respond. Um, and and it, it puts all of it on the proclaimer and the responder, and it leaves no room for God to operate in any sort of way, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I um, you know, you go back to the man's natural versus moral inability. I think the Bible makes it clear that man sees clearly and willingly rejects. Uh, you know, Romans one, which we've already alluded to, verse eighteen: for the wrath of God is revealed against. Or from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then it says, Paul says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so it isn't that they can't see uh, what God has revealed of himself through nature. It's that they see it and they willingly reject it. And the same thing with the working of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so total depravity then definitely seems to be pointing more towards moral inability than it does natural inability. It isn't that we are naturally incapable so much as it is we are morally incapable. Amen. Well, that was extremely clarifying regarding just the um, the common objections that are levied against this doctrine and how to respond uh, biblically and theologically. Um, I know as pastors, you guys both have extensive experience doing that, and, and I trust that uh, those responses were insightful to our listeners. And as, as we transition, uh, maybe even more so towards the the pastoral bent of our conversation today, as we've done so in the past as well. Um, 
the practical and devotional applications of the doctrine of total depravity. I know that might that might seem <laughs> like uh, a little bit strange, like just somebody sitting around meditating on um, how the doctrine of total depravity could could lead them into the worship of the triune God. But nevertheless, as as those who know um, the doctrine and all the entailments of the doctrine, um, that this is a doctrine that can lead the believer to worship God for all that he's accomplished in salvation. Um, where would you guys go to point out, um, whether it be um, passages of scripture or experiences in your own life or church history, just to demonstrate how this doctrine of total depravity has rich practical and devotional applications to the life of a Christian? Well, for me, I think that two passages in particular that I like to turn to, uh, one from the old and one from the new, both testifying to the the grace of God in, in making us become a, a new creation, as, as Paul says, that we, we are in Christ, we are, we are created anew. Uh, one of the passages, Ezekiel 37, with a, the Valley of Dry Bones, um, God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, of course, response is, God only you know, which just, uh, not to, to chase a, a rabbit or anything, but that goes back to what Jimmy was saying, that whenever we present the gospel and rely upon the Holy Spirit's drawing and accompaniment with the gospel, Basically, we say the same as as Ezekiel. Can these dry bones live? Can the are these dead bones live? Can the 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 person whom I am sharing the gospel with come to faith in Christ? And the only response that we have is God only you know. And of course, we we see that the bones are then they're joined together, sinews are joined together, the flesh is put on them, uh, life is breathed into them. And now this valley of dry bones, uh, in this valley of dry bones stands living beings. God has created life out of something that was once dead. And that's what happens in salvation. That's what that's where we begin with total depravity. And then God breathes life into our spiritual death. And then turning to the New Testament, again, Paul references an act of creation in 2 Corinthians 4. I think most of us are, are familiar with uh, you know, Genesis 1, you know, in the beginning was God, right? And what did God say? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Paul, taking the creation narrative from Genesis 1, puts a salvific spin on it, as it were, in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 6, whenever he says, for this, that same God who in Genesis 1 said, let light shine out of darkness, has also shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so many aspects of of devotion here for one salvation is strictly a work of god's doing it is him speaking into the darkness of our hearts and speaking light of the knowledge of jesus christ bringing us to faith it is him breathing life into spiritually dead bones and making us 
come to life. And so one devotional aspect of it is that salvation is, is all of God. Salvation, as Jonah says, is the work of God alone. The other devotional aspect, one that we've already said, is that as the gospel proclaimer, the sole responsibility of a person's faith doesn't depend upon my presentation of the gospel. Now, that's not to say that all the gospel should be there, because it should. We should go through all the gospel. We should be well acquainted with it. But your presentation of it alone doesn't mean that someone's either going to accept or reject, because it is God who gives the growth, God who gives the increase, God who shines light in the darkness, God who gives life to dead bones. Uh, and then personally, once I become to understand what total depravity is in the state from which I have been saved, to understand, and I think that you, you always have to study total depravity alongside of the holiness of God. Because I don't know if we necessarily grasp just how totally depraved we are without, at least to some extent, as God will allow us to comprehend his holiness and his goodness. Because once we do that, and we realize just how far we have actually fallen, and how, uh, if I could say, how deep uh, the depths that God has condescended in order to bring us out of our state of depravity and moral inability, we realize then just how good and gracious God really is. Amen. Amen to to all of those comments. And and just a few things to add, and, and some of it is just reiterating things that have already been said. But I mean, personally, as we reflect upon the doctrine of total depravity, I think it helps us to understand the pervasiveness of of sin in our in our parts as as people. How even as those who have been redeemed, though the power of sin in in its ruling over us and the condemnation and death that comes from sin um, have been dealt with by Christ. Um, there is still a remaining corruption or, or what's commonly called indwelling sin or the sinful flesh in Scripture that, that wars against the Spirit of God as, as the Spirit of God has indwelt us and sealed us and preserves us. And, and realizing and understanding that um, should produce humility <laughs> is, is what it should produce in us, realizing that even when I'm not aware of sinful actions or attitudes that I'm having, I can be assured that this side of glory, that I do have some, <laughs> that they, they are still present in, in my parts. And, and it, it is almost like there's a monster roaming the house of my heart and, and you don't always know where it is. And it's, it's always waiting to pounce in those, those opportunities. So one, it should make you humble and two, it should make you, you diligent. Um, about mortifying, as as the Puritan said, mortifying the flesh, and and utilizing the means that God has given, the means of the ministry of the word, the means of the the sacraments, the means of 
prayer, especially public prayer and just being with and, and a part of the people of God. So on a personal devotional level, I think the t- doctrine of total depravity should make us humble. Um, and secondly, it should make us diligent. Thirdly, how does it make us lead us into the worship of God? I, I echo what Ryan says is that it leads us one to God's holiness um, but as well as his righteousness and goodness and 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 his light and and how he is so incorruptible and inscrutable in all his ways and perfect um, and we are not um, so in that respect it it leads us to worship and a holy reverence and then secondly it also leads us to appreciate the the sheer amount or or power of his grace and his love towards his people um, and how far he he condescended and what lengths he went to redeem for himself a people who did not deserve it and that includes me and everyone else on this podcast and all who who trust in in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation um, on a church level or or a pastoral level or more directly related to that I think that or not only I think, I, I know that you have to have a keen awareness that the people that you pastor have not reached glory yet. And and also, not only that, not only have they not reached glory, but there may perhaps be some who who are a part of your congregation who are not regenerate. Um, and, and there needs to be an awareness of both those. Um, and, and truth be told, you can't, Sometimes you won't be able to tell between the two, um, which is why Christ has has given the keys to the church to exercise church discipline um, and and to to confront sin in its midst and and remove those who are unrepentant. And now I'm not saying that the church will always be right in how it utilizes the keys. Or, or that the church, even in utilizing the keys, is necessarily making an absolute pronouncement upon that person's soul about whether or not they are saved or redeemed. However, the church, by utilizing verifiable proof of, of sinful deeds, as well as the refusal to repent, has been given not only permission, but been given the command to, to remove those who who continue in unrepentant wickedness. Um, so the church should utilize that. Um, and, and that helps in so many ways when the church does, because then, then the preacher doesn't only have to preach on the law and can emphasize on the matters of the gospel and doesn't have to do church discipline from the pulpit, which he shouldn't have to do that. Um, but instead, it should be a work and a labor of the whole church. So that's one thing. And, and on a more uplifting note, um, yes, we should understand that some of the people in our midst are converted and struggle with really serious sin in their life. And we should, so long as they are repentant and desire change, um, we should enter into their lives with them and seek to lead them on the path of holiness 
and and be gentle and kind and and loving while also being firm on on areas that we need to be firm but understanding that sin is not merely a thing that we do or think but is a power that is at work um and though it has no dominion absolute dominion over the believer sometimes believers stumble and fall and and still sit under the dominion of sin when they don't need to <laughs> when we can say no to it and and turn people to the only remedy and that's God in Christ and and look to him and believe on him and trust him and and believe that that he actually does save the people who trust in him and he doesn't only save them from the guilt but he also begins to work holiness in them in the work of sanctification so those would be some personal and pastoral um, applications of, of total depravity, as well as how it would lead us into worship. Well, we've been talking about the doctrine of total depravity today, and it's been wonderful to view this doctrine from a biblical, theological, and practical perspective so, gentlemen, as we look to draw our episode to a close, what would be some of your recommended resources to help our listeners get better acquainted with the doctrine of total depravity and um, maybe some final encouragements that you haven't yet um, provided our listeners with uh, just as they seek to look into the doctrine of total depravity in the future? Go for it, Ryan. You go first. Well, I don't have many resources. Unfortunately, I'm not as well read as my other two uh, colleagues here. And so I, I always go back to R.C. Sproul's book on uh, the doctrines of grace. And I would also recommend his book on the holiness of God because I, I can't say that, you know, coming to a, an understanding of the holiness of God will really kind of highlight uh, total depravity. But, you know, R.C. Sproul's holiness of God, J.C. Ryle's holiness of God is also good. Um, you know, outside of that, my my primary study is, has been systematic theologies, um, which I wouldn't recommend that to everyone. So I, as far as practical readings I, unfortunately i don't i don't have much um really one of the main places to go is i think the second london baptist confession of faith i believe it off the top of my head it's chapter 6 that talks about the fall of man and and the nature thereof and and gets into some of the details the baptist catechism also has several questions on this matter um, another book that was actually, I've, I've had the book and I've, I've not read it in its entirety, but what I have read and found helpful is a book called Beyond the Five Points or Beyond Five Points by Ernest C. Reisinger and D. Matthew Allen. I heard a, a brother not too long ago who said that this book and especially its work on total depravity um, is something that transitioned him out of an unsure stage to to the the reformed position um so that sounds like it might be a good book um if it if it's able to do that um there 
I mean, some of the ones we've recommended in the past, old works like The Reign of Grace by Abraham Booth, I believe has a chapter on it. Um, to get into total inability and natural inability, the gospel worthy of all acceptation um, by by Andrew Fuller, as well as The Cause of God um, and Truth by John Gill are places that you can go um, and, and find a lot of material on, on, on total depravity. I'm sure there are other more accessible works, but unfortunately, I, I haven't read many on, on this subject that are just isolated on total depravity. I'm sure they exist, and I'm sure there are very good works out there. Well, I, one off the top of my head, actually, the, it, I think it's called, um, well, I'm going to butcher it. Um, John Owen's work on the mortification of sin gets into the natural, nature of total depravity. Um, so that might be a good place to work to. And I, I've thought of the book. It's, it's called The Enemy Within by Chris Lundgaard, I think is his last name. That is a very accessible and, and simple reproduction of essentially what Owen teaches in the mortification of sin. So that is one that I would recommend the enemy within. Well, Jimmy, Ryan, it's been a joy to discuss uh, the doctrine of total depravity with both of you today and to continue to make progress through our series on the doctrines of grace. So thank you both for your time today. Uh, and to our listeners, we hope that you found today's conversation to be edifying to you, as well as the previous episodes that we've had in this series. If you haven't uh, been able to listen to those, you can access them through um, Covenant Confessions website. Just go to the link that leads you right to the podcast uh, episode. You'll be able to find those in this series. But um, hope that you'll join us next time on the Covenant Podcast as we look to explore um, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints in our series on the doctrines of grace. And until that time, we do want to wish you grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.